Welcome to The Growing Band Director, the podcast that dives into topics applying to all of us band directors. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Together, we discuss many aspects of the school band program, including how to build your concert, jazz, and marching programs, as well as everything else we do as band directors. More importantly, we'll discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're ripe, you rot. Let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Growing Band Director. Jeff, how are you doing today? Great. How are all you guys doing? Uh, great. We came back from vacation, so my entire body's sore and uh, happy to be back at school. Everybody, we're very excited today to uh, have Randall Standridge with us, a great composer and a clinician from... Um, Randall, where are you from? Um, I live in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Um, lived in Arkansas all my life, grew up in Little Rock, but now up in the Northeast corner, which for those of your listeners that don't know where Jonesboro is, and let's face it, why should they? Um, <laughs> it's pretty close to Memphis, so we're in the Delta, so it is very very flat <laughs> um, yeah, kind of like a beginning saxophone you know <laughs> good <I'll> analogy <laughs> well we're gonna we're gonna hit this uh pretty hard uh today on the grade two and three band level um before we start that Randall, would you give us give the listeners a little bit of information about yourself and what you do and your history and all that Okay, well, the first thing I would like your listeners to know is that, um, you know, I, in the last few years, I've come to prominence as a composer, and I think that's what most people know me as. But um, some of the listeners may not know that I was, in fact, a band director for 12 years. And um, when I say that, I think anytime somebody achieves a certain level of notoriety or celebrity in the band world, people automatically assume that their band teaching experience was probably on like what I would call the pedestal. Um, you know, where you, you know, you have every resource you need and everything like that. And that could not have been further from my experience. Um, I taught in rural Arkansas um, and I was the band director for most of my time there. So I taught the beginners, the junior band and the high school band like every single day. Like that was my day was teaching everybody. Um, so, you know, that was the kind of background I came in uh, to. So first, I want your listeners to know that. Um, Aside from that, uh, now I am a full-time composer. I did not leave teaching because I did not like it. It's just that my life got too busy. And um, one of my big philosophies besides music education in my life is definitely having good work-life balance and kind of taking care of myself. Um, so once my life just got out of balance um, in the band directing and composing and trying to do both, it just became unlivable. And so I was like, well, I will try this for a while. And if it doesn't work out, you know, I will happily go back to teaching. Fortunately, it has worked out and, you know, seems to be working out continuously. But, you know, I, I still keep my license up just in case, you know. Um, aside from that, um, you know, I think in, it seems especially in music education, people really tend to um, define themselves and kind of, uh, you know, identify themselves with our job. But um, I do also like to mention, you know, I mean, yes, I work as a composer, but in addition to that, I am a video game enthusiast. I am, I'm married. I've been married for 25 years. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a fitness enthusiast. Um, I'm, I've got a big group of friends. I'm a horror movie enthusiast. I'm a big reader. 
So, you know, I mean, there's a lot more to me than just the composer, you know. That's great. Well, it, it, it's, uh, it's very evident. Anybody I've ever talked to about your music, you know, when I've told them that you are a band director, a middle school band director is what I had heard, but that you'd had, a, you know, experience teaching all the levels. Um, it's very obvious in, in your writing. So as I'm sure you hear that from everybody who plays your music, we appreciate your music very much and look forward to have to what you have coming in the future. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so we have a, a few questions just to have a uh, kind of pick your brain here today. Um, the first one is about grade two and three music, and we can even dip into grade one, you know, if if we if we if we need to. Uh, I personally feel this music is underplayed in our quest for harder music. Um, you know, all of us try to go to performance and festival with like, the hardest music possible. So so many times in high school, high schools won't play grade three or they won't play grade two. But I just love so much doing music of that grade two and three level because the kids can really experience what it has to offer. Um, so sort of in that realm, and I think most of our listeners, you know, to be honest, we all have bands, you know, a lot of people who listen to this have never uh, had a chance to uh, have their band perform any more than a grade three, right? So um, I really want to dive into that stuff today. Um, why do you choose to write so much music for that grade level? Is it like that there was a demand for it, or you had your kids and you were writing music for the kids you had at the time, or uh, would you expound on that a little bit? Uh, sure. I do want to throw out there that I do write at all grade levels. Um, so if you were to go through my catalog, you know, I mean, all the way down to a 0.5, all the way up to a grade five or six. Um, but you are correct. I did start most of my career writing at the grade two and three level. Um, and, you know, as, as you said, I mean, obviously, like around the time that I really got my break, I was writing a lot for my band kids. And that was about the level we were at at the time. Um, so, you know, my first several pieces that were published, such as Pandora, um, Fields of Clover, Adrenaline Engines, Afterburn, things like that, um, you know, they were at that grade two to, you know, easy three level, because that's what I was experiencing every day in my class. Um, but beyond that, um, it's funny that you say that that stuff's underplayed, because if you look at sales and if you look at the market of band music, that is by far the largest part of the market. Um, really? I mean, without a doubt, like, you know, it's, it's not the grade four and five pieces that you publish a bunch of. So, you know, part of the reason I was getting published more there is because publishers just publish more of that music. Um, so the likelihood of me getting something accepted in that realm was just higher. Um, unfortunately, you know, during that part of my career, <laughs> um, I, uh, I think I got a little too good at it. Because um, then after that, I was I was typecast a little bit. And that's I, I'm, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, that's why I was quick to point out that I do write at all grade levels, because uh, for a long time, I couldn't get publishers to even consider anything else. Um, I mean, it wasn't even just like the music wasn't good. It was just like you're a middle school composer. And that's what I was told. Um, and so it was part of, you know, that's what I was experiencing. But it's also part of that certain doors were closed to me because of how I started my career. Um, so, I mean, I'm just going to be very real with you. You know, I, that may not be the romantic answer you're wanting, but uh, it is the real answer, you know. Well, it's, it's funny. I don't have this uh, on my topic, but this question came to me. Um, you know, I know you've, you've had a lot of stuff written for the marching band realm and shows and, and things like that. How did that, that all come about? Well, actually, that's how I got my start. Um, and a lot of people don't know that either. Um, 
Yeah, when I first started kind of writing and arranging, um, the first like groups that were really willing to take a chance on my music were marching bands. And so I wrote for quite a few um, local groups. And then, of course, my own group once I became a director. Um, and I just, I mean, I number one, I just really enjoy that music. I'm a big marching band enthusiast. Um, growing up, I was a big DCI fan. Um, and that has continued through my adulthood. Uh, so, you know, I mean, like if you want to, if you want to get me lost down a rabbit hole in, um, in YouTube, either show me dumb cat videos or marching bands. And I mean, I will waste an entire afternoon, although I don't really consider it waste, you know, but, um, but still, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm really enthusiastic about that music. Um, so I, you know, I got my start there. And one of the things that I, I don't think I appreciated at the time, uh, because, well, let me back up just a step. Uh, one thing I'm kind of known for is being able to write really fast and that I'm very prolific. And I think a lot of that comes from the demands of being a marching band arranger. Um, because you're, I mean, you're typically on the, on the, you know, on a deadline just all the time. And so I learned to work pretty quickly because I had to, but I, di I didn't appreciate that at the time. And something else I didn't appreciate is one of the other things that I think affected my writing for concert band in the marching band realm, which was when you're a marching band arranger, you are pretty much forced to, um, explore almost every genre of music that is out there because for one band you might be writing a symphonic show for another one you might be arranging movie music for another one you might be doing a rock show um and i mean it's everything so you know it forced me to get really good and really adept at a wide variety of genres very very quickly um, but it also taught me not to be a snob about them and so you know, my earliest experience writing music was in every genre you could imagine. I, you know, so that I, I, I think that has definitely affected my writing. And that was, you know, that's how I got my start. And I still do that to this day. I mean, for example, tomorrow is my first day of writing for marching band for this season. I've got it on my calendar. So I, I start with show number one tomorrow. Well, when I first got to know you through your music was through the marching band genre. And then Time went on. I, I'd see some of your concert band pieces, and then I, I, I conduct a community band of adults. And my colleague picked out your uh, Christmas tale, the uh, Be Beware of the Krampus. <laughs> yes. And, and I said, "Well, now wait a minute. Is this the same guy?" And so I, I started researching. And then, as time has gone on, we've we've bought more of your music and used more of your music and everything. And uh, you know, you can see some of the marching band influence in what you write. But at the same time, you can see the creativity in the line that you're using, how you're getting things from one musical point to the other as being awesome. I, I was listening today when I was just getting ready for this. I was listening to Ruckus. And I was saying, that is a really cool piece. And somewhere along the line today, if you could talk about, you don't have to do it right now, but your legacy, legacy instrumentation series, so we could all understand that a little bit better too. Okay, well, and that'll be... Um... Boy, that's going to be a broad topic. But once you want me to get around to that, you know, we, we can definitely Let's, talk about that. Now's as good a time as any. Let's do it. Okay. So, um, so what in particular would you like to know? I, I mean, that's not. I, I'm not being facetious. I just want to make sure I'm you know focusing on the element you want me to talk about. I don't know that much about it, so I think our listeners would want to know something about it because it was something that I came across today. I, I hadn't researched because I usually don't get that music, but. I saw it and I said, well, that's something I think people would want to know about because. Okay. Well, it's really not my series because um, if you're talking about legacy instrumentation, that is particular to Wingert Jones. 
Um, and that was the um, the brainchild of Ron Allen, um, who who was the um, um, editor, and then was handed off to um, um, oh gosh, my brain is going blank right now. Um, oh God, uh, he's going to kill me if he listens to this. Uh, anyway, I'll give it. It'll, it'll come back to me in a second. I, my, I'm sorry. Today's been a long day, so my, my brain is gone in, in that respect. Um, but anyway, um, Winger Jones did this series called Legacy Series, and um, it was really a response to the um, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, just the need for people to be able to play pieces with a smaller instrumentation because, you know, class sizes were limited. Um, Joseph Snyder, thank you. I knew it would come to me just a second. Joseph Snyder was the um, editor. Um, and uh, and uh, Ron had originally like floated the idea, but it was Joe after he had taken over that really like spearheaded it. And, uh, you know, because he was the editor during the during the pandemic. And so, you know, it was one of those things where because of the demands of the market, it forced all of us to um, just, you know, meet the demands. It's, you know, is what, you know, ultimately if you're a music publisher, the question is what do bands need? Yep. And because what bands had needed had changed so radically um, in such a very short time during that, during that couple of years, that was our response. So it was just a, a way to write a more reduced instrumentation um, type of thing and, and to make it accessible for those groups. But I do want to throw out there, I mean, that idea is hardly unique to Wingert Jones or to myself. Um, I mean, if you look back through band literature and, and a lot of stuff that I play, because, you know, again, the, the school that I taught at was really small. So I got very familiar with a lot of these things. Um, if you look back at a lot of the Queenwood publications, like with Anne McGinty and John Edmondson, um, or the John Kenyon mini score series, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's the same idea. It's just, um, you know, how do you take a smaller instrumentation and still make it interesting and creative um and uh you know i think that's the challenge because i think too many people um kind of dismiss smaller bands and so it's it's nice to be able to and and, you know having some experience in small band myself um it's nice to be able to write things for those groups that you know will be creative and challenging and aesthetically pleasing i i think that that's important because I don't think the effect of COVID is over. I think a lot of us as band directors are still going to feel the effect of lesser instrumentations while we rebuild. I, I know Kyle and I have talked about it. It might take three or four, maybe five years before we're back to a, a norm that we're used to. In my case, I retired from teaching in 2010, and then I taught college for a little while. So I, I only had big bands, so I never had to deal with the concept of the smaller band. But I look at my colleagues that I'm still in touch with, and what they have to go through where they may have one flute, four clarinets, two trumpets, a French horn, an alto sax, no tenor, a barry, no trombone, a a baritone, a tuba, and seven drummers. And how do you make that work? And I I think your legacy instrumentation series and all the other companies that have their different series are an important tool to keep music education going. And I, I thank you very much for doing that and explaining it. Well, thank you. And like I said, yeah, I do want to just not take credit for that because that was something, again, that both Ron and Joe came up with. Um, but I was very happy to participate. Um, and it is something that I think with my own company, Randall Standards Music, uh, we're going to continue with um, because a lot of our uh, a lot of our pieces already work for smaller ensembles. 
And, uh, you know, we're just going to keep going with that, you know, for the foreseeable future, just on a purely, you know, there is a market for this music level. I, well, I know, you know I, I just had a group uh, last month perform at a, at a festival and it's a small group of 29 and we did adrenaline engines and it was, they were able to do it beautifully because even though that's not written in that, in that vein, when you look at the score, it really is. We were able to do it without any French horns and, and yeah, well, no, I'll I'll have to respectfully disagree with you on that one. Uh, okay. Because it really was written for a small group because if you look at the uh, the dedication, mm -hmm. um, it was commissioned by the Arkansas Small Band Association, mm -hmm. and so uh, I mean it was written specifically to be able to be played with a small instrumentation. Um, yeah, but you know, not, you know, fortunately, it sounds good with a big instrumentation too. Um, and it's funny, you know, I, love, I love how you're saying you only had 29. I did not have 29 in my band until my seventh year of teaching. <laughs> so I, before that, it was like way small. The very first marching band I took to contest had 10 wins. That is not a joke. Oh, so well, you, I know that when yeah. I watched your marching band group um, product products from your publishing, um, you were always flexible saying that, you know, tell me what your instrumentation is and I'll adjust the piece to what you need to have it adjusted to, which I think as time goes on in the next few years, that's gonna be a crucial uh, need for our colleagues. Uh, okay, so I, I'd like to jump into the, um, a couple other topics here. Um, as when I first learned about you, Randall, I, it was clear that you were a band director because there was always plenty for the percussionist to do. It was always seemed to be written with a vein of, you know, maybe you don't have to cover every part, because there's so much there, but it's clearly enough for kids to be productive. And sometimes it's it's like, yep, a band director wrote that part because there had to be enough for, for them to do. So, you know, in, I, I'm curious as to not just in percussion, but woodwinds and brass, you know, when we're talking, especially about that grade two level, let's, let's, let's stick to like grade two, like what are things in the woodwinds that are sort of like your, maybe your go-to or what, what should directors be looking at in the woodwind section, in the brass section, the percussion section that really work, you know, like breaks on the instrument or, or things that you really live by that you think helps them perform well at that level? Well, um, you know, on a most basic level, the first consideration for me is always range. Um, now that is certainly not the only consideration, but it starts there. Um, you know, so if you're thinking about, um, you know, what can players at this developmental level do successfully um, that's where I always start. And so I try to limit ranges just a little bit. Like with the brass, I try not to go over um, the equivalent of like a, uh, um, a concert F on top of the treble clef staff. Um, now, do I ever go above that? Oh, yeah, sometimes because the music just dictates it. But um, I try not to make it habitual or to, you know, let the brass live up there because it will wear them out. Um, and so, you know, I, so range is always the first thing. beyond that, um, you know, you I, to me, I think grade two more so than grade one is where you start to see, um, what I would call the idiomatic divide between the instruments, because for instance, if you look at grade 0.5 music or grade one, honestly, most of the techniques are the same. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a, a similarity to technique and pedagogy to all that. Once we get into grade two and then even more so in grade three, the woodwinds start developing more, you know, pronounced skills like with runs and with things, you know, trills, things that they, they will use in upper level music. 
Um, brass start to develop stronger articulation as well as different articulation styles and shapings that you know will become very useful for them when they uh, when they get up to that upper level music. So you start to see the beginnings of things like that. Um, then uh, you know, like for some reason, I guess it's always clarinets we like to talk about with woodwinds. Um, you know, you have to be careful with the break um, with clarinets and not just you know going across it or down, you know, for example. Um, just from my teaching experience, and of course, please keep in mind that everybody's teaching experience is valid and different. But with my teaching experience, um, it is easier for students to go down across the break than to go up across it. Um, and so I try to keep that in mind. Uh, I also try to keep in mind that um, second clarinets can play above the break. However, making them cross it might be a different thing. So there's a difference between running across the break, like going from, you know, um, F to G to A, then to B natural, then to C, or just having the second clarinet start above the break and just play those notes. Like if they're not having to cross, I really don't think it's that hard. Right. Um, you know, so um, especially if they're just in from the C to the G or A above the staff, it can be a really nice sound. Um, you know, uh, but by the same token, you can also have all of the clarinets below the break and really explore that, you know, beautiful Shalmo register, which is my very favorite sound in the concert band. I, I'm really uh, glad you said that because the favorite piece of yours that I've done is your adaption of Still, Still, Still. I've done that a number of times. My wife's done it. She's our middle school director. Um, that's one of those pieces that I would love to hear with an all-state band. I'd love to hear it with the middle school band. It's just such great writing. And the way you wrote the clarinet was great. Well, thank you. Now going to percussion, um, one thing I'm gonna, you know, before, you know, I, I do want to just throw this out there. My main instrument is percussion. Um, or as I like to tell people, I are a percussionist. Um, <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, um, one thing I take a little bit of exception to, and I mean, I'm not gonna gripe too hard, but yeah, you know, it's just um, one thing I don't think band directors even realize they're saying is when they refer to percussion parts and they say, oh, you're keeping them busy. Because, you know, you would never say that about like a flute part or a clarinet part or anything else. Um, to me, when I'm composing, uh, all of the percussion parts are essential. Um, it's, I mean, you know, yeah, I write a lot for it and it's nice to keep everybody busy, but I'm writing that, that way because that is genuinely my aesthetic. Um, that is what I'm hearing when I, you know, create the pieces. Um, one of the things I tell people is, I think one of the reasons people respond the way they do to the percussion that I write is that I tend to write the percussion as their own choir. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of grade one and two music, um, the percussion are pretty much relegated to, you know, if it's mallets, they're either doubling the woodwinds or doubling some melodic line, or, um, you know, the snare and bass are basically accenting what the rhythmic low brass are doing or the rhythmic line is doing, but they're not really acting independently. Um, in my music, they are like, even in my grade one music, the percussion is its own thing. Um, I think educationally it's better and it's more interesting and definitely as a composer, just aesthetically, I think it's more interesting because it opens up a lot more possibilities. Not to mention the fact that um, percussion, you know, the idiomatic nature of percussion is not anything like wind players. Um, the approach to rhythm, the approach to stickings, everything, it, it really differentiates what we can do. I mean, for example, um, you take a, mal a percussionist playing mallet instruments, on day one of their experience with that instrument, they can play the entire range of the instrument. Now they can't read it, 
but they can play it. And if you write it in a clever way, like for instance, let's say you want that, you know, really deep, low marimba sound, which is a really cool sound, um, you know, but tech, you know, technically they can't read down in the bass clef or they can't read that many literal lines below. You simply write it in the, the um, range they can read and indicate what octave they should play it in, like play those two octaves down. Hmm. Um, and it, but it's something that they can do um, and they can do, uh, you know, ostinato figures with, you know, m very large leaps because, I mean, we're just moving hands. And, uh, you know, it's not the same as like a wind player having to figure out the embouchure formation or the wind speed to jump. You know, we can jump easily. And so you just have to, you know, you have to realize that the percussion section is its own thing. It's the, from the, the colors to the um, idiomatic nature. It's just it's its own thing and really shouldn't be treated like the winds. That in your your philosophy on that, does that have anything to do with your drum corps experience as well? Your drum corps? Um, I actually do not have any drum corps experience. Um, I said I was a fan. I did not say I was a member. That's what I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was never fortunate enough to get to March, um, but I've been a long time fan. Um, I, well, I, I don't think it's just drum corps, but I think marching band in general. And um, I mean, it definitely had an impact. But beyond that, um, one thing I don't think people talk about enough is we just have a lot more percussionists now than we did, you know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's because of marching band. Um, you know, if you look at marching bands from 20, 30 years ago, you know, you might, well, I'm, and I'm talking about the average band, not, not like the big, you know, champions, you know, national groups, but like the average band, you know, they might have like a couple of keyboard players and, you know, maybe one auxiliary player, but everybody else was on drum line or on a cymbal line or things like that. Things have just changed now. You, you, it's nothing for even a smaller band to have five or six people on mallet instruments, you know, plus a synthesizer, plus all this other stuff. So the change in marching band culture and the change in marching band aesthetic have driven this need for more percussionists. So now that we've got them and we've got these electronics, what do we do with them? Mm -hmm. you know, so that's generally drives my approach. Um, there are people that accuse me of writing you know, for too much percussion. Um, but you know, to me, that's the reality that band directors are dealing with now. You have a group that has maybe five percussionists and they want to play one of your pieces, but it requires eight. Should they not do the piece or should they omit stuff? Well, I mean, they're certainly welcome to omit stuff because to me, it's no different than like groups that don't have oboes, you know, or bassoons playing a piece. You know, I mean, you've, you've got to make do. Um, so, but you know, they, they would just have to be smart about um, what they covered and what they didn't mm -hmm. um, or about combining parts. Um, I've had several directors who've messaged me and they actually end up uh, taking one of their wind players and putting them in percussion as well, just to cover things. Um, so I, you know, there, there's a lot of options. Um, and, uh, but you know, it, it really just comes down to the piece because there are pieces I write where the percussion element is more important than it is in others. I mean, for example, if you were to play my piece, the Rowan tree, um, the percussion isn't super active in that piece. And, and I mean, not, it didn't need to be like that piece didn't really require that. Meanwhile, if you go over to, um, one of my, uh, newer pieces called affirmation, um, all of the percussion is pretty important, um, from a purely mechanical, like how does the piece work, you know, perspective. And so I think it really just comes down to the piece. So yeah, Jeff, go ahead. It's interesting. You talk about the choirs because it, 
I go back to my marching band experience, teaching everything and my drum corps experience. You hire one person to write the battery part. You hire another person to write the front ensemble part. Then you hire another person to do the electronic part. And then they all have to come together. So it's like their own little ensemble meeting so that they can make sure they've got the unity of what they're doing in conjunction with what the horns are doing. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I see your focus and your point real well. That makes a lot of sense. Randall, um, I'd like to let the listeners know, you know, could you let us know some of your favorite pieces of music um, in this grade level? In the grade two to three level. Um, so let, let me give it just a, yeah, a few thoughts. And I will say some of the pieces I'm going to name are probably going to be a little bit older. Um, but that's also, I like to say they've stood the test of time. So if I'm not naming like the newest pieces, you know, although there will be a few in there, you know, I apologize to your listeners. Um, so some of my favorites, if I had to, to think of like some of these, and I am going to throw in a few of my own at the end, but I'm going to, I'm going to start with other composers. Um, some of the best ones at this level, um, one that immediately jumps to mind for me is, um, the Red Balloon by Anne McGinty. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of you listeners that are not familiar with that one, get familiar with it real quick. Um, it's, it's just unique. It, what I love about it is it doesn't sound like anything else that is out there. There's nothing else that sounds like the red balloon. Um, really to me, um, just, you know, with my knowledge of music history, it really, um, evokes the, uh, Satie Gymnopodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's very French impressionistic and it is totally beautiful. And, and, um, uh, a little bit, you know, um, surprisingly difficult, like to put together. I think even some, uh, more advanced ensembles would find it challenging to really bring the music. I, and I mean that in a positive way, there's a lot of great musical moments in it, but it's, you know, it's challenging. And that's what I like about it is it really pushes, you know, that uh, can push a smaller group or a smaller ensemble, but it's so musical and so well orchestrated. Um, so that would be one. Um, another one I like, and this, this is an old one, and unfortunately, I think this one is out of print, but if you can find a copy, it's absolutely fantastic, is the John Kenyon Air and Dance. Um, it's just, it, it is wonderful. Um, it is so musical and so challenging, but but again, so rewarding. Um, I would also recommend, and, and I'm, you know, I'm starting with some of the older pieces, I'm going to work my way through the, through the uh, course of, you know, band. Um, there's this entire, and again, these are out of print, so I apologize. Um, there's, um, this old set of, uh, little dances by Leroy Jackson. Um, there's little English suite, little Scotch suite, little Irish suite, and all of them just fantastic. In fact, they were the inspiration for a piece that I wrote that was just called little suite because I got mad because those were out of print. So I was like, well, by God, I'm going to write one that's in that style too. Um, so, uh, so those are really good. I'm kind of moving forward a little bit. Um, you know, I like I grew up during the time period when uh, James Swearingen, Claude T. Smith, and guys like that were really big. My all-time favorite uh, James Swearingen piece, uh, of which there are many, because I, I, I stand James Swearingen like hardcore. Um, but uh, my very favorite is Exaltation. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I cannot get enough of it. I played it when I was in high school and I loved it then. I love it now. I played it with my band when I was a director and it was just, it was just as fun then. Um, so that one, you know, it's a, it's a concert overture. It's got super catchy rhythm, super catchy melodies, and it's just great. Um, this one is technically a grade 
the next one I'm going to mention is technically a grade three, but the reason I'm mentioning it is because um, if you look at the score, you're probably going to say, oh, this, this won't work, but it actually works great for small ensembles. And that is Claude T. Smith's Declaration Overture. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just one of my, all, I know that most, most you know, band people prefer his um, um, Imperata Overture, but for me, it's straight, Declaration Overture is my very favorite Claude T. Smith. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just, it's so energetic and so fun and works great for a small or developing ensemble. Um, similarly, just, you know, another sneaking into the grade three area. And this is one that I've actually, a lot of people haven't heard of, and this one's a little bit harder, but it's, it's great. Well, I should say people my age haven't heard of, um, but it's, um, Polly Oliver by Thomas Root. Um, it's a really unique piece. I like to call it a reverse overture because instead of fast, slow, fast, it is slow, fast, slow. Um, has one of the most hauntingly beautiful clarinet solos I have ever heard in my life. Um, so I would say that's another one that, that's right up there. Um, another lesser known work that I think is a classic is um, The Willows of Winter by B.J. Brooks. Um, and it is a grade two, but it plays like a grade three because it is very challenging. Um, and then, of course, there is the uh, classic They Led My Lord Away by Fred J. Allen. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the older ones that I would say are some of my favorites. Moving on to newer literature. Um, there's a, um, a couple of pieces by Brian Balmages that I just completely adore and I program at every opportunity. Uh, one is Rippling Watercolors, um, mm-hmm. which I just think is one of the most beautiful grade twos I've ever heard. Um, but even on our festival this past yeah. uh, two weeks ago, it, the kids loved it. Oh, yeah. But even better than that, or at least to me, even better than that is his piece that's just called Rain, R-A-I-N, Rain. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I'm spelling is because I've got a very thick country twang. And I want to make sure your, your listeners can understand it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I almost feel like I need subtitles at some point. Um, but, uh, but Rain is just beautiful. And what I like about Rain is um, it, 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 it incorporates the percussion in a more meaningful way than uh, rippling watercolors does. And again, that's not a knock against rippling watercolors. I think it's beautiful, but for me, like if I'm wanting to engage all of the players in an ensemble, which I do think is our job as educators, then I think rain is the one that I would program more because it's just, it's, it's very, very beautiful. And it in, you know, engages all of the players in a very, very meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, another piece around that level that I like is, um, the Bonsai Tree by Julie Giroux. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk about something that utilizes all of the choirs. Uh, one of the things that I, I love about that piece is, uh, as, as I'm sure your listeners know, um, Julie has a uh, background in cinematic music. You know, she has done film scoring and everything. She's incredible at it. Um, the Bonsai Tree is so cool because it literally, like, you can hear it just traveling from choir to choir. It's essentially like woodwind choir moment brass choir moment it starts with a percussion choir that sounds like a music box and it's amazing um and then you know the big moments is when all, when all the choirs come together but it, it's just a great piece for teaching um, independence as well as just being an aesthetically beautiful piece um let's see I'm trying to think of, of some more that i've uh, heard recently that i that i really like um I know I've listed off quite a few. Um, so here, I'll, I'll list a couple of mine, I mean, if I may. 
Absolutely. Um, and uh, these are the ones that I'm, you know, if I had to say like, I'm really, really excited about. Um, I mentioned a piece earlier called Affirmation, um, which is one of my favorite things I've written recently. And it, it's very, if I, if I had to talk about my compositional style, I would say I'm very concerned with how pop culture and pop music intersects with our symphonic voice. And uh, that piece really explores that. Um, plus, it has a really positive message about um, acceptance and kind of reaffirming people. Um, it was it, If you read the program notes, it was written for the underdogs and the people who were kind of sidelined. So that one's really meaningful to me. Um, I also have a piece um, that I really love um, that is called uh, uh, Where Words End. Um, and it was published by FJH. It's a lyrical work. And um, there's an interesting story behind that one because it, it was not originally called Where Words End. Uh, it was originally um, called um, Untitled because um, the piece is about nothing. Um, I have a strong opinion that a lot of band music has become programmatic, which is fine. And I mean, I love telling a story. I love showing ideas. But I also think that um, the... Uh, you know, I, I think our students need to be able to realize that music can exist just for its own sake and it can, you know, for its own aesthetic, completely abstract. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that piece was about. And um, even though it's a, a grade uh, two, um, I would put it in the top five things I've ever written. Last one I'll mention um, is a piece that at that level I wrote called Frogs. Um, and uh, that one came about in kind of a weird way. My mom got me one of these things called a frog guiro, um, which is a guiro that looks like a frog. And it, like when you scrape it, it really actually genuinely sounds like a frog. And so she got me one of those. And around the same time, I was listening to a lot of Percy Granger. Mm -hmm. And um, Percy Granger is one of my favorite composers. My very favorite piece, by the way, is Molly on the Shore. Um, mm -hmm. So much so that I actually have a dog named Molly. I call her Molly on the Floor. Um, but at any rate, uh, that is totally beside the point. Um, the, uh, so I was listening to that and um, I was just in my office one day and I thought to myself, what if Percy Granger ever wrote a grade one? Like, what would that have been like? And around this, and I looked over at my frog row and I put the two ideas together and I wrote this piece that is very Granger inspired, but at the grade 1.5 to two-ish level. Um, and it, it's just this fun little thing and it actually became a whole suite of pieces that I call the garden suite. So I, th I think those would be some of my favorites in recent years. Do people need a frog guiro in order to perform it? Well, I mean, it's not essential because I mean, you could just use a regular one, but I, you'll really be missing out because I mean, the sound is so unique and it's so cool. Um, so so I'm, gonna be honest, I've, I'm gonna be honest, I've never heard of a frog guiro. What makes it different? And is this something we can buy as band directors? Oh yeah, you can buy one. Yeah, um, we, uh, uh, you can get them on Amazon. Um, and like from other, I mean, they're pretty easy to find. Um, so, uh, so, I mean, just to give you an example, like when I wrote that piece, I did it as a consortium. And part of the, the gimmick with a consortium was that, uh, uh, you know, we would send everybody a frog where like that, that was part of the consortium. And so um, like, it, anyway, yeah. So we had like, a hundred something frog weirdos at our house just shipping these things out <laughs> so we had to you know source them from so many different places and get them but yeah we got them out to people and it was great so they're pretty easy to find i i can't wait to listen back and write down all those titles and check them out i i knew a lot of those but 
I bet you nobody listening to this had heard of every single one of those pieces. So, um, you know, it's funny how you have a list of everything that you know, but oh, Jeff, Jeff, what'd you find? I, you a have frog a frog guero. Frog guero. All I did, I did exactly what Randall said. I went to Amazon and there's like 10 or 15 different type ones. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And they come in different sizes. So, you know, the bigger they get, the deeper they sound. Yeah. So it's it's pretty cool. That is. So I have a generic question as someone who, you know, has traveled a lot of places and you've seen amazing programs and you've seen smaller programs and some amazing smaller programs and, you know, every type of program that's out there, you know, advice that you can give to middle school band directors, high school band directors, just sort of what, you know, what are, what are common things you see as you see successful programs and, you know, and messages for them. Okay. Well, I, you know, I would say that probably the biggest, like the, my advice is going to sound pretty boring to a lot of your listeners, but it's because it's the boring stuff that matters. And it's the boring stuff that really separates great programs from ones that are not so great. Um, I, one thing I can tell you, and I am very serious about this. I can walk into any band room, listen to a band warm up and tell you every single problem that is about to happen in the performance. Um, I have this philosophy that is the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And so when I walk into a program and I see a director just kind of on autopilot going through warm up and they're not really paying attention to it, phrases are being dropped in the corral, you know, uh, note lengths are not correct, articulation is not together, timings are not together. This is all a snapshot of what's about to happen in any of their pieces. Because, you know, you, um, anyway, there's just that expectation of excellence has to be consistent throughout the entire program. Now, a few other things. Um, th this, I'll, I'll use this as a, uh, this is a true story, but I'll use this as a story to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, had a band director friend around my area uh, when I was teaching, uh, asked me to come in and listen to his group. And this was about a week before concert festival. Um, I, mean, I mean, that's fine, you know, because, you know, you just want to give that last little polish and kind of touch. So we went in and the, there is no nice way to say this. Like the entire performance was unlistenable, not not because the kids played poorly, but but the sense of like the tone quality and the tuning and the blend were just non-existent. Like they were they were really and it, it was the weirdest performance I've ever heard. Because like technique wise, like no, it was, it was sort of like note length and um, articulation, everything like that was actually pretty good, but not one moment of it had a good tone, not one moment of it had good blend and not one, one moment of it had good balance or tuning or anything like that. And so I asked him, I was like, I was like, um, you know, or I said, you know, these are the issues like, uh, you know, uh, you might want to think about working on, you know, tone and tuning and, uh, and blend. And he's, and literally, I mean, being serious, not a joke, he was like, oh, we're going to work on that next week. And yeah, I don't think at the time, and I do want to just like, you know, you know book, bookend that story with in a, a couple of years after that, um, he had really gotten on board with some things he and I talked about later. And I, I mean, not just me, I'm not going to take credit for that. Lots of people have told him this as well as all the judges. Um, and, uh, but I mean, his program ended up being really good, but it, that was a kind of rough year of the year I got to visit. Um, but he, he just didn't realize at the time that, you know, to me, when, usually when band directors say a student is playing a wrong note, um, they're saying what they're really saying is they're playing a wrong position. 
They're playing a wrong finger position. They're playing a wrong slide position, whatever. But to me, I think if you expand the definition of a wrong note to be one that you know, any element is wrong, but especially in terms of tone, um, it changes the way you approach everything. Because, um, and this is something that, that a mentor of mine told me, because uh, you know, when he was talking to me about how important tone and blend were, he, was, he said it just like this. He was like, if your band doesn't play 16th notes well, you can just pick a piece that doesn't have 16th notes. If your band doesn't play in the key of D flat well, you can just pick, you, you can just not pick a piece in the key of D flat. He said, but if your band has a bad tone or bad tuning, he was like, they sound bad from beginning to end. It's like not one part of the performance will be enjoyable. So to the listeners that, you know, that are younger directors, I would say, you know, really focus on the quality of your band's sound. Um, because beyond that, like, it doesn't matter how good their technique is if they don't sound good. Um, it, the, the sound has just got to be great. The second big thing of advice I would be, and I'm going to give you all a book that I would recommend to everybody. And I, and I want to go on record as saying, I do, I do not know the author. I get no kickback from recommending this book. Um, I just think it's a hell of a book. Um, but um, I read this book during my time teaching called How to Make First Chair by C. Roberts. And it, it was one of these like lightning bolt moments I had in my teaching career. Because what the, what the book is, it's a how-to guide for how to practice. Like this is a step-by-step -step guide of this is how you practice to be successful. Like this is what a successful practice looks like for an individual. And of course, you know, through extrapolation for a full group. Um, and what I realized and had to swallow a very bitter pill, you know, after I read this in my career was that I was not teaching my students how to practice. I was insisting that they practice. I mean, you know, the horns were expected to go home every night. We practiced after school with all this but not once in my career, except maybe a little bit by accident in beginning band, was I, was I teaching them and making a conscious effort to like, this is how you practice, this is how you become a studio musician. And um, once I started doing that, and once I put the focus on their individual development, because part of that too is, you know, if you're gonna have somebody practice on their own and you're gonna make this concerted effort, they have to be musically literate. Um, so once my focus became that, you know, my, my band was good, but it went from being good to being great. And it, and it happened very, very quickly once I changed my focus. Um, so to the younger band directors out there or even the older ones and everybody in between, um, I would recommend reading that book and seeing how you can apply it to your ensemble situations and make sure that you're imparting actual practice techniques to your students. Um, because yes, you know, some of the students you have will naturally understand that those are the students that we call the natural, you know, talents, but even your average players can learn how to practice well, but they do have to be instructed because it's not a skill they come with. Can you give us one of your favorite tips from that, something that you found really successful? Oh yeah. Um, the biggest thing was, um, having students do a, what I call a note inventory, um, so like, for instance, they go through a piece of music and they literally go through naming and positioning every single note before, I mean, before they try to play it one time. Um, and what it does is it forces them to find notes that they don't know, they may or may not know. Um, because, you know, if you're like, let's say a clarinet player, you know, only really is, is uh, literate through like the G above the staff. Well, if there's any, an A or anything above that, they're, I mean, they're already set up for failure before they even start trying to play the piece. So it, you know, it's 
that's just one example. But what the whole thing does is it makes the player just kind of take a step back and really examine the music they're going to play. The second thing I would say is it made me, it, it's, it really goes into the, the needs for repetition and kind of why repetition is necessary, which I don't think we as music educators do a good job of communicating to our students. And it's because music is way, way, way more, excuse me, music performance is way, way, way more physical than it is mental. And because we're a fine art, we like to, you know, really consider ourselves to be intellectuals. And because of that, we're like, no, 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 you know, music's mental, music's in the heart. I'm like, no, music is physical. You know, it, it, there are so many muscles involved in any music performance. Um, and because of that, it changes the way we should teach it because it has to be a little bit more athletic in our approach. You know, repetition is necessary slowing down and getting things correct and developing correct uh, motor control and muscle memory become much more necessary. One of the nice benefits for me that I got out of that once I had that epiphany and um, really started applying it to my program is it made me a much more calm teacher. Um, suddenly I wasn't frustrated with having to do a lot of repetitions anymore because it was a necessary part of the process. And it just, it just made the whole thing a lot less stressful because it, you know, it just, it took the, well, we shouldn't have to be doing this again away. And it's like, well, of course we should have to, because we're trying to develop muscle memory. Well, that's great. I'm going to check that book out. I hope our listeners do as well. I have, I have one final question that I, I, I think is a topic that you're I, um, clearly an expert at and have gone through many times. And I think there's a lot of people who are band directors who have not commissioned new music who have not, you know, they buy music, but they don't promote new music and put and put those together. So, you know, I'd like to have a conversation around commissioning band music, especially from the viewpoint of a band director who maybe has never done it before. Um, you know, how do you, you know, everything from picking a composer to use to choose source material and money and like all the things. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'll just kind of start, you know, what I think is the beginning for everything. The if once a director or an organization decides they want to commission a work, um, there's nothing wrong, first of all, with kind of shopping around, okay? You don't have to like go with the first composer, you know, you, you talk to, or I mean, you're certainly welcome to, but you don't have to, um, because, you know, having been a director, I realize that budgets are always a concern and that, you know, that, you know, plus, you know, is it a composer whose work you really believe in? Um, you know, so one thing I think people need to realize is that if you, you know, whatever composer you commission, you're going to get a piece of music that sounds like that composer. So like, for instance, if you're going to commission me and you tell me, Hey, I want something that sounds like John Mackey, you're talking to the wrong person. You need to go commission John Mackey. You know, I'm sure he would love to talk to you. Um, because if you taught, you know, cause I mean, he already writes the best John Mackey music there is. I write the best Randall Standard music there is. So, you know, whatever aesthetic you're going for, that's the composer you need to go talk to. Um, now having said that, so the first step would be to reach out to a composer. And, and I would say the first consideration, even beyond money, always needs to be timeline. Um, to me as a composer, and I know for a lot of other composers, that is always the biggest consideration. It's just, do I have time to do this in the time that you need it? Um, so you need to know your timeline and specifically you need to know two things. You need to know when would you like to have the music in your hand 
and when is the premiere going to be? Um, so you need to know those two things to be able to communicate with the composer about that. Then you need to know bare minimum uh, the difficulty level of music that you are requesting. So like, you know, grade three, grade four, you know, that type thing and the instrumentation. Um, you know, because, you know, are you a full symphonic band? Are you a smaller band? You know, be very honest with the composer about the instrumentation that uh, they're going to be writing for. Because, I mean, I, you know, I'm pretty sure every composer wants the group to be successful. You know, I mean, that's, that's just, you know, that's just normal. Um, so, you know, those two things. And the reason I say all that is all of those factors that I just talked about are going to go into the cost. Um you know, so I mean, like I've got my own pricing scale for commissions and it's you know very different from other composers. And basically it comes down to, for, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll get composers that ask me like, how do they price their music? And I just say, what is your time worth? You know, and then you just, you go off that. Um, so once you have all that figured out and you talk about price, if the price is mutually agreeable, um, after that, you, uh, if you have any specific requests for the commission, you should definitely communicate that before the, before the composer agrees to it. Um, because I know like for myself, um, I tend to shy away from, pro from projects that are micromanaged. Um, and I am not shy about quitting a project either. And I have done that. Um, like when I feel like I'm being micromanaged or not allowed to write like I write. Um, and it's, it's never like, you know, confrontational, but sometimes people just want different things and, you know, and you know, I may not be the best person for the job if they have a very particular idea. Um, so once you do that, there usually for each composer, there will be a contract to sign and usually some kind of down payment. Um, you know, for like for myself, uh, with, uh, with my commissions are the required down payment is 10% of the agreed upon price. Uh, for other composers, it I've seen some, you know, they ask for 50% up front. Um, so it just, you know, and, and there is no industry standard. It's just, it comes down to each composer. Um, and then beyond that, uh, I would, my recommendation is that you just uh, let the composer do their job. Um, you know, if you want to check in occasionally, that's fine. But they probably don't need to hear from you every single day. Um, and, and I've had that happen. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I'm not, for those of you that listening that might have been people who have commissioned works for me, I, I'm not talking about you. Like I am talking about like when, when I say every day, that's a literal truth. So if, if you, if you only commission, if you only talk to me like three or four times, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> like I'm talking about literally every day. Um, so, uh, so just let the composer do their job. I, you know, I think one of the misconceptions that a lot of band directors have about commissioning a work from a composer is I think that they think once it's commissioned, you know, that composer starts immediately. Like the second they hang up the phone and they're thinking about their piece and they're doing that. I'm just going to be very honest. And if this is a disappointment to your listeners, I apologize in advance, but I don't. What I do do, however, is I estimate about how much time I think it will take me to write a piece. And then I pad it by an amount of time appropriate to the grade level. For example, if it's a grade one, two or three work, I'll pad it by about a week. If it's a grade four, five or six work, I'll pad it for two or three weeks you know, beyond what I really think the, the time it will take me. Um, and then I set that, side, that time aside on my calendar. Um, so for example, if the piece is due, um, you know, by June one, 
Um, and this is way back in December when somebody commissions me. Um, I'm not going to start on that piece right in December, but I will probably set aside some time in April to write the piece. That way I can get a first draft to the commissioning party by the end of April and do final, you know, drafts around so that, you know, we're ready for parts and score delivery by June 1. So um, that's the other thing I, I would say to the listeners is, you know, it's, you know, I think a lot of composers have a production schedule and a you know, project cycle and we will cycle around to your piece, but we probably don't start on it immediately unless we were just sitting around waiting on a project, you know. Jeff, anything you want to jump in with? No, I, I, I'm really thrilled to have met you and to have listened to you and got to talk with you. It's, a, it's an honor. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, we appreciate this conversation very much. Well, next time, everybody, um, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, check out Randall's music. If you have not already, you must have been living under a rock, but check out more and more stuff and go back and listen and hopefully you write down a lot of those pieces that he gave us. So uh, everybody have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Growing Band Director podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you have the time, we highly recommend the After Sectionals podcast for more great listening. Thank you for listening to the Growing Band Director. See you next week.